FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content. Welcome to FX Medicine, bringing you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend this respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Fibromyalgia is a chronic musculoskeletal disease characterised by multi-system issues including chronic musculoskeletal pain, fatigue, sleep disturbance, depression and cognitive issues. It affects about 5% of the adult population and is disproportionately higher in women aged 20 to 60 years. Given the complexities and recent breakthroughs, I've invited my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lily Thomas, to do a deep dive into the pathogenesis of this condition and to give practitioners some clinical pearls to help them support their patients with this often misunderstood and stigmatised chronic condition. Allow me to introduce Dr. Lily to you. She is an integrative medical GP working out of rural New South Wales. She's a regular keynote speaker and a teacher of doctors and health practitioners in many areas of nutrition and environmental medicine. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. Lily. Thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's definitely my pleasure. (laughs) So fibromyalgia is possibly one of the most maligned conditions. You know, many sufferers still feel misunderstood and it can devastate some people's lives and not to mention their livelihoods. It's not a passing condition as a general rule. So tell us, Lily, what is going on for these patients and what are some of the underlying causes we really need to kind of know about? Well, firstly, when we speak of fibromyalgia, like so many different chronic diseases, there really is no one cause. And Mm. rather, you know, we have multiple etiologies or multiple causes that differ from person to person. But there are two main explanations in fibromyalgia that do underpin all the others. And these Mm. are both chronic systemic inflammation as well as neuroinflammation. And we can break these down even further. We need to understand that there's varied conditions and they all sort of coalesce together and that accounts for all the different varied symptoms we see in the people with fibromyalgia. And, you know, when we're talking about these conditions, I'm meaning things like oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, activated mast cells, activated microglia, and both peripheral and central sensitization. And I'm Mm. sure we'll get a chance to discuss each of these in turn as we go along today in the podcast. Yeah, be great to kind of break them down and kind of really understand A, how they interconnect and B, it's like one thing kind of leads to another and sort of, you know, that's why it's like looking at the whole and then diving in. So it kind of begs the question, like, 
why does this happen for some people? You know, is there a trigger? Is there mm. certain risk factors that we need to be aware of? What is that underlying kind of trigger point of that inflammatory response? Yeah. And like I said earlier, I don't think there is only one trigger point. Every person is unique. And so there's different risk factors with every person. Mm. But in saying that, there are several common risk factors that we should really explore if we want to successfully help someone with fibromyalgia. Mm. And so we need to understand where the inflammation is coming from, both that chronic Mm. systemic inflammation and the neuroinflammation. So the risk factors that I just want to bring up today, I mean, vitamin D, we've all heard so much about vitamin D. Absolutely. Um, It's so, so important, yeah, for so many different things. We have to see if someone's vitamin D deficient. And Mm. it's important. We would all know as integrative doctors, you know, when you look at reference ranges, you know, the reference range in my lab goes from 50 to 140. And most integrative doctors and naturopaths would always aim for mid-range with most things. But truly after COVID and after all the research that's pointing to increased severity of symptoms, correlating with low vitamin D, an optimal level would be surely closer to 140. And the Mm. data clearly shows this with fibromyalgia as well. So Mm. always considering vitamin D. We need to look at gut health as well because we know that most diseases begin in the gut. And our gut contains at least 70% of our immune system. And so Mm. if our digestion is not good, like if we've got intestinal permeability or, or intestinal dysbiosis, that's certainly going to contribute to the symptoms of fibromyalgia. Mm. There's also evidence that people suffering with fibromyalgia have abnormalities in both their peripheral and their central pain processing pathways, and we can go into that a bit later on. You have to yeah, look I'd at like lifestyle. Mm. Yep, yep. You know, like the, our diets, whether we smoke, how much exercise, how well we sleep. Of course, we've got to consider psychological factors. There is a higher incidence of fibromyalgia in those people who've been sexually abused in childhood or Mm. who've experienced sexual violence in adulthood as Mm. well. Genes will have a part to play as well. There's more and more genetic things we're finding out about now and there's a higher uh, number of SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms or mutations in people with fibromyalgia. And interestingly, they, they are all concerned with our serotonin receptor and transporter proteins, our COMPT enzyme, which is really important, as we know, for mental health as well, and Mm. our dopamine receptor protein. So all of these things can add up. Oh, and one thing I definitely need to say here is environment, obviously, Mm. you know, the environmental factors. We need to know, has this particular person been exposed to, you know, mycotoxins from mould or any tick-borne diseases? Do they have heavy metals, pesticides? We just have to look at it all together and um, work out what those specific risk factors are for that specific person who's sitting in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that being said, like, I mean, it's almost, you know, it's a seriously complicated deal, you know, such interconnected systems and we've got almost like our mind-body medicine, we've got our digestive and our environmental aspects and all these lifestyle factors. Where do you like to start with complex conditions like this? Hmm. Well, look, I suppose it really does depend upon the person that's sitting across from you as to what Mm. their needs and their priorities are. That's the first thing to consider. But, 
For me, ideally, I always tend to like to look at gut health first. I like mm. to look at what they're putting into their body. And I find that's really important because if every day they're eating things that are inflaming them, then any supplements that we might use may not be absorbed as well. Mm. And we have to fight against those foods. And we know how common food intolerances are in this yeah, society, absolutely. you know. My little mantra is anything can do anything to anybody at any time. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> it's, yep. it's just so true. We know that food intolerances do far more than just digestion issues. There can be direct links between foods and pain, foods and energy, foods and mm. moods. Foods and sleep. So, yes, I would have to say, for me, I tend to start gut first, if I can. Yeah. So there's there's a strong correlation between irritable bowel syndrome and fibromyalgia in the research, mm. isn't there? Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Uh, you know, at least a third of the patients and even up to 80% of patients with fibromyalgia actually meet the diagnostic criteria for irritable bowel. So there's really significant associations here. And besides the food intolerances that I was just mentioning before that we all know contribute to IBS, there's also the gut microbiome and this Mm. is huge. You know, this is such a growing area. We know that the studies have shown that supplementation with probiotics can significantly decrease pro-inflammatory mediators such as Mm. tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6. We've got specific bacterial colonization patterns which have been linked to chronic pain, um, Mm. like clostridia, coagulase negative staph. um, And there was actually a a new study that they presented or paper they presented last year, which actually showed that people with fibromyalgia have different amounts and species of bile metabolizing gut bacteria and different concentrations of bile acids in the blood. And this is one way to to distinguish. They're saying it's very important even as a biomarker now specifically for fibromyalgia because it's different from, say, the people with IBS. Mm, Amazing. And also, you know, if you think of the gut microbiome, we all know about LPS, the lipopolysaccharides, um, those really powerful pro-inflammatory endotoxins that are produced from from the gram-negative bacteria in our gut. That's really important in fibromyalgia because if we're suffering with intestinal permeability or SIBO or CIFO, for instance, we know we're going to absorb those LPSs, you know, hugely. And it's been shown that the LPS actually causes mitochondrial dysfunction in the muscle and Mm. it causes peripheral hyperalgesia and this thing called central sensitization. So it increases pain. Mm. Um, Not only that, it activates our microglia in our brain and causes neuroinflammation. So So there's another concept as well, which um, is called the microgenderome, which proposes that our gut microbiome can actually interact with our own sex hormones. So this then gives insight into the certain sex discrepancies in, in susceptibility to particular disorders. And we know that fibromyalgia is definitely far more common in women than in men, for instance. Wow, that's amazing. It is, I mean, isn't it's, it? like, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I also love the fact that there's, you know, it's often a two-way street to, you know, you mentioned psychological factors before and as they, you know, mm. which one's the chicken and the egg and then like Absolutely. how do they interact with that? It's all just a fascinating kind of enmeshment, so such a beautiful Absolutely. thing. But it's also really important for to be able to kind of really show these inflammatory markers and this, the way that 
this inflammatory, I guess, cocktail works for people with fibromyalgia because they often feel disbelieved and they feel unvalidated in many respects, which actually almost heightens that psychological stress, you know, particularly in the medical, it's almost like a medical trauma when, when people are disbelieved. So mm, it's interesting now with the long COVID and everything surrounding that, how there's now talk of, well, I think we may have underestimated the effects of fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, you know, mm. with more and more people are suffering from a long COVID type situation as well. People yeah. are now starting to be believed a little bit more, I would hope. Yeah, it may, it may just open the door for this kind mm. of level of understanding with so many people affected as well, so that yeah. more money might kind of pour that way. But I wanted to get back to your clinical expertise. Where do you start in terms of like looking at the gut biome or, you know, intestinal Mm. permeability and dysbiosis, what sort of microbiome test is your favourite and why do you choose? Or is there certain things that like pique your attention that you kind of go, okay, well, I'm going to start there or I'm going to start there? Sure. I mean, there are so many different microbiome Mm. tests available these days. It's incredible. I suppose having done this for, you know, at least the last two decades, like you, Michelle, as well, (laughs) you know, I tend to stick with one of the tests that was around back then, which is Bioscreen, based in Melbourne with Dr. Henry Butt. It's really interesting to see, you know, the same patterns popping up, whether you're dealing with someone with fibromyalgia or whether you're dealing with someone with autism or chronic fatigue. The microbiome test can just really tell you so much. And oftentimes you will see an excess of certain microorganisms such as strep or clostridia that we mentioned or perhaps a deficiency of E. coli, for example. Mm. And there are these specific protocols that you can follow to successfully balance the gut microbiome with great results. And I mean, I really should thank Dr. Henry Butt from Bioscreen at the moment who really taught me so much about these amazing links between the gut microbiome and so many different chronic illnesses, not just fibromyalgia. So that's my point of call. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So obviously like treating gut dysbiosis, it then goes a long way to sort of settling down that micro inflammation and goes hand in hand with oxidative stress. It's almost like oxidative stress and fibromyalgia is interlinked. Is there truth in that kind of statement that like you can almost assume that there's oxidative stress if somebody is presenting with fibromyalgia? Sure, most definitely. There's Mm. a clear relationship between oxidative stress, neuroinflammation and pain in fibromyalgia. We all know that glutathione is one of the most important antioxidants in the human body and studies Mm. have definitely shown that people with fibromyalgia have decreased blood levels of catalase, of glutathione peroxidase and glutathione reductase. So what this means is they can't clear their free radicals and you get Mm. increased lipid peroxidides and that's just resulting in higher levels of oxidative stress. They've also found reduced superoxide dismutase levels have been found in, in people with fibromyalgia and that's been linked to chronic muscle pain as well as tender points. And what we know, even though we don't understand all the connections yet and we're still learning, we know that the greater the abnormalities in our antioxidant and free radical status, the greater Mm. the severity of symptoms. It's almost like a really great clinical pearl to kind of know that because if you're sort of stumped, like at least maybe sort of seeing whether you can increase some of those antioxidants may just give you a little bit of a win to get Mm. you over to the sort of next step. But 
Let's talk yeah. oxidative stress and like mitochondrial dysfunction because, again, it's almost like, okay, well, here's the staircase. This is another step mm-hmm. um, in mitochondrial dysfunction is almost like really been elevated to a really key point, I think, from my observations the last kind of five years or so or even more. Mm. But tell us about a mitochondrial dysfunction and, and fibromyalgia because there, there seems to be a really significant link that matches to um, a person's symptoms and how they're feeling. Oh, absolutely. And again, it's the oxidative stress. We know that's Mm. one of those triggering mechanisms for mitochondrial dysfunction in fibromyalgia. Mm. And so when our our mito aren't functioning correctly, what happens is we get increased glutaminergic transmission. And remember that glutamine is one of the body's most important excitatory neurotransmitters. So it excites everything. We get activated microglia as well. And this all results in neuroinflammation. And once we have that neuroinflammation, it contributes to peripheral muscle pain, but as well as central pain sensitization. And that's Mm. one of the hallmarks of what we call wind-up pain in fibromyalgia. And it's also important to know that the expression of our pro-inflammatory cytokines that happens in fibromyalgia is both dependent upon and elevated by mitochondrial dysfunction and oxidative stress. Mm, such a chicken and in the all, egg, isn't it? It's like it is, you know, it is absolutely so bidirectional. Right. Mm. Yes, yeah, and mm. and mito as well. When we when our mitochondria are not functioning properly, it's actually been implicated in damage to the axons of our nerve cells, yeah. and that's one of the potential underlying causes of allodynia, which is mm. one of those characteristic symptoms of fibromyalgia. You know, when you get the really severe pain from just slight touch or or yeah. even a breath of wind. And once again, going back to Mm. gut health, we know that mitochondrial dysfunction can be triggered by those LPS, the lipopolysaccharides that I was just talking about before, D-lactate, you know, increased intestinal permeability, SIBO and so forth. It's all connected. I I was always fascinated by psychoneuroimmunology. It was my favorite. Yeah, you too. I know. (laughs) Psychoneuroendocrinology. It just, everything is connected and it is amazing, Mm. isn't it? It, it really is. Yeah, makes my gives me goosebumps. Me um, too. <laughs> but yeah, I think yeah, I think I think though, you know, what really strikes me listening to you talk about that microscopic neuropathy, because one of the things we know about neuropathies or or nerve damage is that it takes a long time to heal. So it's a really good way of giving our patients kind of perspective actually of how long this will take to to heal, particularly if you're doing you know, all the right things and you want to turn it around, mm-hmm. it's still going to take a long time to turn around because yeah. you're dealing with the nervous system. And I think that's really, I mean, I often find setting my patients' expectations is almost like the primary thing because some people yeah. get off the bus too quick. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it's not your stop, you know. It's like you can't just wait two stops and get off the bus. You know, this is going to take years to unravel. But there's positive things that happen in those years going forward. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And especially when that central sensitization kicks in because you know then things have gone far and it does take a while to bring this back. Yeah. And you're right. You're right. It, it is years in a, lot of, in a lot of people. So tell us about treatment applications, you know, particularly for this because, you know, we know coenzyme Q10 is, you know, a really important nutrient and lots of vegetarians and vegans aren't getting enough. We make it ourselves, but it decreases with age, all of these kind of things. But it's often deficient in fibromyalgia, like even yeah. if you've got a young patient, et cetera. 
Why is that, do you think? And is replacing it enough or do we have to do more? Absolutely. And you're right. There's been so many studies demonstrating that people with fibromyalgia have low coenzyme Q10 and also just as many studies demonstrating the positive effect that CoQ10 can have, Mm. you know, on the symptoms of people with fibromyalgia. But once again, coming back to mitochondria, everything being linked, our mitochondria depend upon CoQ10 or ubiquinol to function Mm. properly. And we don't totally understand all the mechanisms by which CoQ10 can do this, but we do know several things. Like, firstly, CoQ10 is absolutely essential to our mitochondrial electron transport chain. And we know that that's critical for creating ATP, which is Mm. the energy that, you know, the main energy source for us humans. And we do know also that there's a high concentration of mitochondria in skeletal muscle. And of course, this is where most of the pain in fibromyalgia is. Yeah. We know that CoQ10, you know, has potent antioxidant and free radical scavenger properties. And we know how the reactive oxygen species, the free radicals, can create hyperalgesia in patients if there's too high levels. And there's one other effect that is considered here that... CoQ10 may be under the control of what's called our AMPK gene and this is considered to be the overall regulator of our cellular energy levels. And so it's actually thought to be another possible mechanism for why CoQ10 helps us to improve symptoms in in people with fibromyalgia. Mm. And often it's so interesting to me, I remember going to a lecture years ago about sleep and we know how important sleep is, but often um, you need actually more energy to sleep than you do, say, sitting on the couch watching Netflix. So there's a relationship between coenzyme Q10 and the use of melatonin, you know. Mm. Is melatonin kind of an option to help support sleep or, you know, tell us about sleep and fibromyalgia because that that seems to be a nice, good place to kind of start as well. Absolutely. I mean, we all know that lack of sleep, just like stress, can make every single condition worse. Mm, Um, Everything. (laughs) Everything, everything Mm. for sure. But we know melatonin is much, much more than just a simple sleep hormone. You know, Mm. it's an antioxidant, it's an anti-inflammatory, and it's an anti-nociceptive and analgesic in its own right. We do know that melatonin is produced in the pineal gland, but it's actually not just the only place it's made. It's it's actually made in our skeletal muscle as well as Mm. our GI tract, our immune cells, our liver, our spleen. And fun fact, it's, it's not just humans that make melatonin. Melatonin is yeah. also found in plants and animals and insects and fungi and bacteria. So it just shows you then that melatonin's got to have many greater roles than the ones that we're just currently aware of now. Mm. Like psychoneuroecology. Neuroecology, absolutely. That's a new, new, new um, phrase you've coined. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to patent it. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, When we think about melatonin and fibromyalgia, its role there, we know that obviously melatonin can help sleep and when we're well slept, then that can result in less anxiety and so therefore that can reduce our perception of pain. But once again, going back to our mitochondria, we know that mitochondria are strong producers of melatonin. And remember, Mm. our skeletal muscle has this high concentration of mitochondria. And so it's thought to be another mechanism by which melatonin, you know, exerts its positive effects on pain in fibromyalgia. 
But more and more studies are showing it's not just about this either. We've got melatonin receptors connecting with mu opioid receptors and they release beta endorphins when they are bonded with melatonin. But melatonin can also affect our GABA B receptors, which regulate anxiety and pain. And if we remember, GABA is our most important inhibitory or calming neurotransmitter in the body. Mm. So all of these things combined, you know, melatonin we know is just simply not about sleep and sleep alone by any means. So we can't have a discussion on fibromyalgia without mentioning mast cells as a potential link. I mean, we've just released an episode on mast cells recently. Tell us about the role of mast cells and how, you know, they play a role in the dysfunction and, and how do you go about considering that as a key avenue to go down? What do you look out for in that clinical kind of situation? Well, look, I suppose the most important thing to know about mast cells is they function as a critical bridge between our immune system and our nervous system. They actually connect the systems both directly. I mean, the mast cells actually abut our peripheral nerve endings, so they're right next to them. But Mm. it also connects them indirectly because the mast cells release their chemicals. Yes. And so the primary job of the mast cells in our body is to coordinate the body's immune response to toxins, to infections, to allergies, etc., But when they are inappropriately stimulated, so if there's too large a burden, which we think is one of the things happening in fibromyalgia amongst many other conditions, then they become activated and they can start reacting to just ordinary stimuli. So like foods that we eat, smells that we smell, touch, light touch, things that shouldn't be a problem become a problem when Mm. these mast cells are really activated. And themselves, we know mast cells, they produce far more than histamine. In fact, it's like more than 200 different biochemical mediators, um, which can be released. And depending upon the conditions and depending upon if a person is having a flare-up or not, the mediators can change. So ultimately, this can cause different symptoms for that person as well, which is what adds to the complexity of everything. And we know that the mast cell mediators have been found in both the plasma, so the blood, and also the cerebrospinal fluid of patients with fibromyalgia. And so this is going back to where we started. It's highlighting that importance of both the chronic systemic inflammation as well as the neuroinflammation mm. that's happening simultaneously in fibromyalgia. And so we've got this crosstalk that's just going on between the two systems. And when we have these imbalances between our pro and our anti-inflammatory cytokines, then we're going to get disruptions in our inflammatory and our immune pathways. And once again, that's going to contribute to to our neuroinflammation. Also our thalamus, you know, in our brain, it contains a significant number of mast cells and they can cause neuroinflammation because, again, the mast cells activate our microglia, they can increase the permeability of our blood-brain barrier and, of course, they're releasing all those molecules, as I said, more than histamine, just, you know, substance P, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-6 and so on. Mm. And then... Once we've got this continued activation of mast cells, well, that can lead to MCAS or what we, we know as a mast cell activation syndrome. Once we've got that, that's when, once again, things it's like the central sensitization. 
that it's far more complex. Um, we, yeah. we've, we've got far more blood-brain barrier dysregulation. We've got more mm. microglial activation. We've got more neuroinflammation. And it's the neuroinflammation that actually turns acute pain to chronic and causes yeah. chronic pain to continue. Mm. Um, it's and then you very get that complex. vicious cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, very complex and very difficult to unwind. But I guess, you know, having a look at the mechanisms kind of allow us, A, at least validation for the patient, but also, again, that expectation that this, these processes take a long time. But so long as the patient can acknowledge the complexity but also understand the unravelling process and, and mm. using the things that are internal to them, their innate healing mechanisms can help a lot. So if you have that issue with Marcel, you know, overstimulation, for example, what's your mm. kind of go-to starting point just from a practitioner perspective? Like what are these clinical pearls that you like to use in that particular situation? So I suppose it's important to work out whether or not mast cells are involved with the particular patient that's sitting in front of you. Mm. We know that MCAS is such a chronic multi-system condition. You know, it's going to have a wide variety of effects in a wide variety of organs. And so, mm. you know, you can think of the things that are happening with, with skin, so rashes and itching, um, mm. dermatographism. It can affect our eyes by getting irritated eyes, our ears. Uh, we can get tinnitus our respiratory system, we can get shortness of breath, cardiovascular system, you think of palpitations, neurological headaches, digestion issues, you know, mm. urinary frequency. It just goes on. Virtually every organ system can be affected. And that's, again, it, it makes it hard to, unless you're aware that MCAS could actually be happening, you're just trying to find a, a condition for every single one of those symptoms rather than putting it all together in a syndrome. Mm. So as I said before, depending upon which of the mediators that are released by the mast cells at any one time, it's important to remember that each patient can present with different symptoms, but even the same patient can present with different symptoms at different times, depending upon their triggers. And so, you know, I always think, is Marcel being involved here when, you know, if the patient has multiple symptoms in multiple systems in their body, symptoms that come and go, and also lots of different triggers. And there's always an inherent difficulty in trying to work out what those triggers are simply mm. because they keep changing. That's what I would think to be aware, okay, our mast cells are at play here. Mm. So one of the most fascinating parts of that recent presentation that I saw you at, at a conference recently was around the evidence between the difference between female mast cells and male mast cells, I thought that was absolutely incredible. You know, female microglia compared to male microglia. And this has some bearing on that predisposition of fibromyalgia in women, you know, with these kind of conditions. Yeah. And so often it says this underlying kind of sense of that, you know, women are, you know, vulnerable and they get fibromyalgia or they complain of pain. It's, it, it sort of feeds into a bit of a cultural I guess, negativity, you know, around that. So mm -hmm. tell us about that, you know, because like, yeah. you know, there's estrogen, progesterone connection, et cetera. Like what is going on there? I find this fascinating. Mm, absolutely. It is uh, definitely fascinating. I agree with you. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it really is. In terms of mast cells, we know that um, there are both male and female mast cells. Wow. And the, the female mast cells are the ones that tend to have more aggressive immune responses. So wow. this is really good because it's better, you know, to fight infection on the one hand, 
But on the other hand, it can predispose females to suffer from more inflammatory and autoimmune conditions as well. Mm. So there's two sides of the sword, if you like. We know female mast cells, they actually store and release more inflammatory substances than, than male mast cells. So they release more proteases, more histamine, more serotonin. But what's so more also, allergy, more those kind of you know aspects too. So more allergenic... Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And what's even more fascinating is that muscles have estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors on their membranes, which Mm. then cause, you know, the muscles to degranulate their contents and release all those chemical mediators when bound to the sex hormones. Right. So, so at different about, times of the month, they can change as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And also all those environmental estrogens, the xenoestrogens, mm. you know, the BPA, the PCBs. Just think, you know, we're being exposed to those. They can also activate the mast cells. Yeah. So really, this is, I think this is amazing and really significant. And it can really account for the female predominance in so many different autoimmune conditions. That's amazing. Also, yeah, one of the fascinating things also is not just the mast cells, it's the microglia in, in, in our bodies that can be also male and female. And so there's actually well-described sex differences in the microglia in male and female brains. So, mm. you know, as far as the microglia, they've been found to differ in number, they differ in shape, they have a different morphology, and they certainly differ in their activity. And it's interesting that female microglia are more active in regions involving pain processing than the male microglia. They also have a higher expression of phagocytosis receptors and also a higher expression of cellular repair and inflammatory control genes. So just like the mast cells as well, the microglia actually also express steroid hormone receptors. So they're Mm. also sensitive to, you know, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. I just find this incredibly... It's amazing, yeah. Absolutely fascinating. And when you think about adverse drug reactions as well, what they've worked out is this sexual dimorphism of both our mast cells and our microglia can lead to sex-related differences in drug metabolism. So whether it's absorption of drugs, excretion of drugs, distribution of drugs. Mm. And we know that there's more adverse drug reactions have been reported in in females compared to males. And this really could be one of the reasons why. Absolutely. And it's just important to kind of know because back hundreds of years ago, we just used to sort of diagnose women with hysteria. But you also talk about some of the dramatic changes in brain architecture, which is I always find so fascinating. And I think, mm-hmm. I think the general kind of community don't actually understand when we talk about brain plasticity, but really brain architecture almost gives it a sort of more of a sense of solidity and how we can, how long it takes to unwind that, you know, like we build up these almost like structures within our brain where signals from different parts of the brain can become dysregulated and therefore unravelling from that takes a lot Mm. longer. And you talk about this concept of the pain matrix. Tell us a little bit about that in the concept of fibromyalgia as well. Sure. Look, there've just been so many studies done now, which, you know, using all sorts of different scanning techniques like MRIs and PET scans and neuroquant scans, that 
they actually demonstrate the swelling or which we associate with neuroinflammation in certain areas of the brain and atrophy in other areas in people with fibromyalgia. But mm. not just fibromyalgia too. They're sort of seeing the same types of things in people with chronic fatigue syndrome, with SIRS, so that, you know, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. These same sort of swelling or inflammation and atrophy are being highlighted in these other conditions as well. And the interesting thing is, is that the degree of glial activation of brain inflammation actually correlates directly with the intensity of fatigue. So the greater the neuroinflammation, the greater the fatigue. Mm. And there is one particular part of the, the brain, you mentioned the pain matrix. So the anterior cingular cortex, um, remembering back our neuroanatomy yes. from all those loved years it. ago. Loved it, Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's a part of the brain <laughs> which is most closely linked with chronic pain. And mm. studies have shown that there's abnormally increased brain activity in this anterior cingulate cortex, but not just there, also the thalamus, the insula, and the prefrontal cortex in individuals with fibro. And mm. this area of the brain is what's called the pain matrix. So when, when we've got increased activity here, this can cause central sensitization and then that's going to lead to abnormal pain sensitivity and decreased pain modulation in mm. both our ascending and our descending pain systems in the body. And what we're finding in fibromyalgia is that the signals from our prefrontal cortex to our limbic system in particular are dysregulated. And if we remember that our prefrontal cortex is our rational, logical brain, whereas mm. our limbic system, particularly our amygdala, actually runs on a fear-based system. This is really important because we can call the amygdala like the fire alarm of the brain, if you like. Mm. And so in people with these conditions, instead of the prefrontal cortex taking control, what happens is the fear-based amygdala can take over. And so we've got lots of different sensations which go through our amygdala, you know, the scents that we smell, the foods that we eat, even the supplements that we take. So really anything can produce a fear response when the amygdala is hyperactive with, with microglial activation. And so, you know, we, we start reacting to, to stimuli that would normally be considered to be non-noxious, if you like. Yeah. And so this dysregulation between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex can actually explain a lot of the other symptoms that people with fibromyalgia have, like cognitive dysfunction, fatigue, their emotional regulation or dysregulation, depression, anxiety, not just the chronic pain. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to, to teach patients about this too because often yeah. there still is that framework of when you talk about looking at, say, mental health or anxiety management or emotional regulation in the context of a chronic illness. It almost feels for patients that you disbelieve them if you're going to go down that particular avenue. But mm -hmm. from a mind-body perspective or a psychoneuroimmunology perspective, we can do so much when we look at these particular situations, particularly when they're reacting to every supplement or every, mm. you know, thing that we're trying to kind of give them, you know, to see, yeah. see, see whether we can wind back the chronicity of that inflammation, neuro and systemic. systemic. Yeah. So 
also looking at brain architecture and seeing brain changes and actually understanding that pain matrix can really give people something solid to to hang on to that doesn't say we're disbelieving you here and it's all in your head and if you just manage your anxiety, it's all going to go away. Exactly. But more so that if you can manage your anxiety and, and start working on some of these these central mechanisms, these kind of brain mechanisms that will actually wind back that inflammatory response as well. Mm-hmm. So there's heaps of research and excitement about that role of activating and stimulating the innate endocabinoid system, still terrible, that word. Are these preparations, are they a good starting point? Is that something in terms of sort of winding back some of the chronicity and some of these kind of enmeshment that we're seeing in such a chronic condition such as fibromyalgia? Mm, Absolutely. I certainly believe and the research shows our endocannabinoid, it is a hard word to say, (laughs) is intricately related (laughs) to to the symptoms, you know, people with fibromyalgia experience. And it's thought that there's possibly an endocannabinoid deficiency in people Mm. with, with fibromyalgia. So we know that both CBD and THC have anti-inflammatory, they've got analgesic, anti-anxiety effects and mm. sedative properties. We know by the research that both CB1 and CB2 receptors can assist in reducing pain because they directly affect the nociceptors, the pain neurons in our muscles. CB1 mm. is actually found in the nerve terminals in our central nervous system and our peripheral nervous system so it can modulate the neurotransmitter release and CB2 is found primarily in the immune system cells and also in the microglia in our brains. So THC also we know it can act as a partial agonist at both the CB1 and the CB2 receptors. And the endocannabinoids, I mean, again, there's so much we're still learning about it, but they can also interact with so many other pathways which are involved in in pain perception, such as our 5-HT, our noradrenaline, dopamine, GABA, and also our opioid receptors. So so Mm. effectively, you know, these endocannabinoids can work (laughs) synergistically with our own endogenous opioids. That's so important too, particularly Mm. because... Pain is just, it's so difficult to focus, concentrate, you know, even have confidence and self-esteem when pain is just so omnipotent in, in somebody's life. And yeah. you've, you've spoken about the centralisation of pain and brain architecture and, and pain matrix, but you also mentioned that it often starts as a peripheral wind-up. So peripheral preparations that target peripheral nociceptors are becoming more widespread, you know, and there's so much variety in these preparations. And is this designed for more localised pain syndrome or for widespread application? If we're looking at using some of these things, what what is your thinking Mm -hmm. in clinical experience here and what have you found to be effective going down that particular pathway? Look, absolutely. I've certainly found topical analgesic therapy. It's effective in so many different conditions, including fibromyalgia. Mm. And basically it's because we know that the propagation of pain starts in the periphery. So by using topical therapy, our aim is to reduce the excitatory influences or the excitatory signals and increase the inhibitory influences or the inhibitory signals in the periphery. Because if we can reduce or even stop 
peripheral sensitization, then we can reduce or even stop central sensitization. And mm. that's really important. There's so many different excitatory influences in our peripheral system. If we think of glutamate and histamine and substance P and so on, and so by understanding pharmacology, we can use different drug preparations to target different areas in order to reduce the hypersensitivity of pain. For example, we could use a topical preparation of an anticonvulsant to reduce both peripheral and central sensitization, as well as to target our descending inhibitory pain pathway. And that's the body's natural way of reducing pain. The most obvious benefit when you're using these topical therapies is that we avoid the side effects and the drug interactions, yeah, which is so absolutely. common with our systemic analgesics. You know, we can yeah. go local and focal, but in terms of treating a more systemic disorder like fibromyalgia, we can actually use these topical preparations on our trigger points and mm. also the appropriate dorsal horn level in our spinal cord and mm. so the the dorsal horn corresponds with you know a particular area that is innervated by this and we if you remember back again to anatomy and yes, dermatomes I, and now myotomes yes. yeah um <laughs> fibromyalgia can i might have follow. missed that lecture Lily. yeah <laughs> Um, we know that that fibromyalgia can follow these specific myotomes. And, you know, if we can identify that particular single nerve that is being activated here, we can actually use the topical therapy on the level of the dorsal horn and that activates that descending inhibitory system. Mm. And it's really significant in fibromyalgia because most of the tender points in fibromyalgia have actually been found to be myofascial trigger points. So even though that fibromyalgia is rooted in the central nervous system with its central sensitization, trigger points have a peripheral origin, yeah? And they can be targeted through this topical therapy. So the whole aim is to provide analgesia by desensitizing our peripheral nociceptor receptors, so our peripheral pain neurons. Yeah, it's so important to have some of those really targeted, really almost like, I mean, it's not an easy win per se, but it's almost like an instant, you know, supporting agent just to give people some, you know, some trust back into their body, some trust back into therapy and and into, you know, that therapeutic relationship, which is we know is so critical for the longevity, particularly on long journeys such as fibromyalgia and today you've just given us such an incredible journey through you know things like the causes and the issues and the course treatments and where to start you know whether we start with the gut or whether we start Mm. with these peripheral preparations and also just most importantly understanding you know the intricacy and the duality and the dramatic nature of what people suffering with fibromyalgia are going through. And there's, I think from a practitioner perspective, it's like, wow, you know, like, A, there's so much that we can do. B, it's so deep and almost, I think, you know, people with fibromyalgia need that respect um, from their clinicians in which to do that. But I particularly loved the research on the female microglia and Mm, and, um, her muscles. It just really does offer that insight into the way women work and and really there's just so much need for research to help destigmatize these kind of issues for women so I just want to 
Thank you so much for your clinical expertise and your, you know, research around this area. It's really been a fantastic listen, fantastic podcast. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Look, honestly, it's just been a pleasure to, to, to be here today. So hopefully, you know, people can learn some clinical gems um, from this and look at the links, etc. And yeah, t- take, take treatment to another level mm, <laughs> if <brilliant>. we can. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening today. And don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to FX Medicine, and share us with your family, friends, and colleagues. 